This is the Amblecote Christian Centre podcast. Over the last two podcasts, we've seen how the Messiah was expected at the time of Jesus. We've seen what the situation at the time of Christ was. In the first podcast and in the second, we've explored what the Jews expected from the Messiah as seen in the Old Testament. This time we're going to begin to look at how the Messiah's arrival was unexpected. I don't mean to say unpredicted or wildly different compared to what the Old Testament uh, prophesied, but many aspects of Jesus' mission were not clearly spelt out or were mysterious or were missed by the Jews at the time. If If the story of the Messiah was like a jigsaw puzzle, then the parts we've discussed are the corner and side pieces. The unexpected parts of a Messiah were arguably the most important for seeing the actual picture of God's plan for humanity, but they were the most veiled or hidden in the Old Testament. Of course, uh, these make perfect sense to us today, these scriptures about Jesus uh, being God, being crucified, being the Lamb. Um, But the picture that the people at the time knew uh, was that that the Messiah would be king. They didn't know that he'd be the king of the universe. They also knew that he'd be high priest, but they didn't quite see that he'd also be the sacrifice. If a picture of a Messiah in the Old Testament is like that jigsaw puzzle, uh, before Jesus arrived, they were trying to work out the picture uh, without having the front of a box, and they were only able to get those corner and side pieces right. But even those bits they still argued about. Quoting from a book... Lungman writes, some Jewish people did not expect a Messiah. Others thought the Messiah would be a priestly figure. Still others thought that he would be a royal deliverer. Some scholars interpret the evidence to suggest that at least one group of Jewish thinkers believed there would be two Messiahs, one priestly and one royal. Even those close to Jesus were still speculating. John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, had a strong image of what he expected from Jesus. In John's speeches, he highlights the warrior aspect of a Messiah, using Daniel 7, Zechariah 14, and Malachi 4. Even now, as the axe is lying at the root of a tree, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but the one who is more powerful than powerful than I is coming after me I am not worthy to carry his sandals he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will cleanse the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary but the chaff will be burnt in unquenchable fire we can see in John the Baptist here the forerunner to Christ that even those with a clearer image than most expectation of what the Messiah was going to do still needed confirmation. John the Baptist famously said in Matthew 13 3, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus surely was the picture on the front of our puzzle box um, that helped put all the pieces into place of the Old Testament testament but even in his ministry Jesus' own disciples failed to understand the fullness of the messiah as jesus having fled and lost hope at his crucifixion 
upon his resurrection and seeing him with their own eyes, they still failed to recognize him. How foolish are you and slow to believe all the prophets declared, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Matthew 24 states, was it necessary? Well, that's a good question, Jesus. Let's, let's take a look at some scriptures in the Old Testament and let's look at a few ways that Jesus did the unexpected. First thing that was unexpected was Jesus was the king of the earth and heaven, not just Israel. Psalm 2 says, I will proclaim the Lord's degree. He says to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This poem in Psalm 2 is a triumphant and hopeful expectation about the king and his reign. This was likely composed at the time of David, and that makes a lot of sense, because when David was king, the kingdom was getting bigger. Uh, It makes sense that the psalm would hope that the kings would one day bow down to the Lord's anointed. But after the reign of Solomon, this psalm would appear again as a bit of a joke to the faithful of Israel. The king of Israel was nearly always under the thumb of a bigger empire. They were vassals paying taxes and allegiance to either Babylon, Assyria, Damascus, a whole host of other foreign powers. If this was political propaganda in this poem, it's surely the sort that even the most radical of Jew would have struggled to believe. 2 Samuel and many other verses repeat this promise. Your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Which at the time of Jesus and Roman rule was a remarkably unlikely circumstance. Jews would have identified that there is a promise here. That they would have a king in the line of David forever. And identified that maybe, just maybe, their king would rule the promised land. And an important note here on the promised land, it's it's described in Genesis um, as being given to Abraham and Abraham's seed, uh, but it was huge for the time. The promise that God gave was that it would range from the Nile to the Euphrates, which is about the size of, of England. But at the time, that would have represented overcoming some of the most powerful empires, being the Egyptians and the Babylonians. But suffice it to say, Israel, not even in the time of Solomon, ever got anywhere close to ruling over the promised land. The minimal expectation of the Messiah at the time of Christ was to set up a kingdom about the size the one the Romans had destroyed, get things back on track. The maximum expectation was that the king would go on to rule most of the ancient Near East, the promised land, for Israel. But Jesus went an unexpected step further. That instead of claiming, instead of just being the king of Israel, he claimed to be the king of kings and the lord over the whole earth and all the nations. He also accomplished that in an unexpected way. Rather than wrestling through extended wars uh, and armies with the powers of the empires at the time uh, and set up a new political Israel, he does two things. First, He recasts the struggle with foreign power and Israel uh, not being a kingdom. Instead of the enemy being Rome or Babylon or or a human authority, Jesus' mission comes against the power behind those powers. 
Caesar might sit on the throne of the most of the known world, but sin, death and darkness rule Caesar's heart. From the least to the greatest, all were subjects to the inescapable human brokenness and influence of that crafty serpent from Genesis biting at their heels. Jesus then, as king, goes into battle with sin and darkness itself, securing victory through his sacrifice on the cross and allowing humanity to inherit his nature instead, so sin no longer rules. Secondly, he goes further in undermining the existing kingdom and saying that it doesn't really matter anyway. He claims that his authority outstrips theirs and he creates a new nation. Paul even calls it a new citizenship, the church, of whom Jesus is the head. This new kingdom recognises no national authority or, or earthly kings. It's not subject to any king or ruler other than Jesus Christ. Paul explains how Jesus fulfills a promise given to Abraham, claiming that Christ in fact inherits the earth and the promise of Abraham, and all people can be joined to that inheritance through faith. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, Paul says. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. In Galatians, Paul develops this further, explaining how everyone enters the kingdom, uh, not just for Jews. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Romans 4.13 he tells us, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received a promise, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Outside of a community of Christians, many Jews after Jesus' death were still expecting a Messiah um, that would lead the Jews into a holy war uh, to set up a new kingdom. But after 30 years, 30 years after Jesus' death, many Jews were aligning themselves behind another Messiah called Bar Kokhba to rebel against Rome and bring in a new kingdom. The Roman response, however, was brutal. The Jews were decimated, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem itself is renamed, and another Jewish state doesn't exist for nearly 2,000 years. On the flip side to these earthly messiahs trying to set up a Jewish kingdom, Jesus' work continues. Within four generations of believers, a Roman emperor has become one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus' views and values are infecting every level of Roman society. Rome's gods are truly dead. The emperor's cult is dead. Beyond his heavenly kingdom that defeated sin and beyond his new kingdom's citizens that know no borders, race or social status. When you think about it, Jesus really did end up fulfilling the Jews' expectations of a messiah to lead an army to defeat the empire. Jesus just did it without raising a sword. His army was an army of preachers, evangelists and apostles. So Jesus was surely the king of the earth. But there's something special about Israel's king. Unlike societies around him at the time, King David had no legal authority to change the laws of Israel. Picture that, a king who couldn't create laws. 
Israel is so unique because the laws and commandments for society had been given to them through Moses and the king's role was to apply and judge those laws for the land. Really then, the kings of Israel were only ever stewards of the throne. To maybe put this in some political talk, God always retained legislative control over his kingdom. He only ever handed out to people administrative responsibility. So the coming Messiah, who was going to be this great and powerful king over all the nations, to truly be king, would have to be God himself. And this is the second aspect of Jesus the Messiah that was unexpected. There are clues in the Old Testament, but most people just missed it. I mean, who was it that always rescued Israel in the Old Testament? Well, it was always God. But there's some, some more concrete than that. Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7 is one of the glimmering hopes of scripture pointing in the Old Testament to the fact that Christ is in fact God himself. It says, I saw one like a human being coming down with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship to all the peoples, nations and languages who should serve him. I saw one like a human being here predicts a human king in the flesh. Most translations render this person as son of man. But the son of man is clearly more than just a man. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. An image that is only ever used about God. Clearly, this human flesh Messiah King would also somehow be God. Let's take a look at Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of a Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. The priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Are you the Messiah, Jesus asked. Yes, I am, he says. But that's not what made the high priest claim blasphemy. It was not an unusual claim at the time and not blasphemy to claim to be the Messiah. After all, many had done so and another would do so a little bit after Jesus' death. But the high priest did not react blasphemy because Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. What stirred the reaction was the quote from Daniel, you see the son of man. He was quoting the Old Testament, but also quoting Psalm 110, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honour at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. By applying these verses together, he's connecting himself with the idea of the Son of Man, with a picture of heavenly clouds, and he says that he'll be lifted up to the right hand and enthroned with God. This is blasphemy because it claims equality with God, and that's what the high priest recognised. This chapter in Mark, where Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah and calls himself God, comes uh, in the lead up to his crucifixion. We're talking about an unexpected fulfilment of scripture, and dying on the cross really was a mind blower that very few would have guessed. But of course, the Old Testament does point to this fate for Jesus. It was just too wonderful for anyone to expect. This brings us to our final point. The Messiah would be the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, 
the ultimate sacrifice to undo this curse of sin. Isaiah 52 immediately springs to mind, even though the New Testament rarely quotes it. See, my servant will act wisely, and he will be raised up and lifted up highly exalted, just as there were many who appalled him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, for what they have not heard they will understand. This verse directly links the Messiah to the figure who suffers for the people. By using that telling phrase, my servant, you may remember that from uh, the, the branch verses we read in the last podcast, my servant, the branch. But there's plenty more indirect verses, verses that the New Testament teaches us were prophetic about Jesus, even though those verses in context are sometimes not even about the Messiah. But Jesus opens these verses up to us. Famously, Psalm 22 perfectly narrates the crucifixion scene. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People glare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Read Psalm 22 for yourself and tell me that's not a picture of Jesus being crucified. Jesus uses Psalm 41 verse 9 as a prophecy of his betrayal. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Psalm 118 verse 22 and 23, which is a psalm about how the Lord saves and delivers his people, says, The stone the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvellous in our eyes. Jesus and Peter both quoted these verses, predicting that Jesus would be rejected. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. John quotes that verse in his crucifixion account too. The New Testament then is confident that Jesus had to be betrayed and had to be pierced on behalf of the people. But to really understand why that had to happen, we have to go back to all we learned about the high priest and the temple and the blood. In the last podcast, we learned about the role of blood, a symbol for life. In the Old Testament, its power is to clean people and places of sin and death so that they could stand in the presence of God. But we also learned that these things that happened in the temple were mere shadows of real stuff in heaven, explaining why animal sacrifices and blood could never really do the job properly and could only ever provide a temporary covering and washing and not deal with the root issue of sin. The blood of imperfect animals in an imperfect world was not enough life to break the curse of death. But let's read now, in our final moments, this verse in Hebrews, which is a great account of Jesus' work on the cross, but written from like a heavenly perspective, kind of describing what's happening with the temple and the blood. But when Jesus came as the high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not part of creation. 
He did not enter by blood of goats and calves, but entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that their bodies are clean, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our consciousness from works of death so that we may serve the living God? Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive a promise of eternal inheritance. Now that he has died to redeem them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to establish the death of one who made it, because a will does not take effect until the one who made it has died. It cannot be executed while he is still alive. That is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. For when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled blood with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels used in worship. According to the law, in fact, nearly everything must be purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be, bu be purified with these sacrifices, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made copy of the true sanctuary, but he entered heaven itself, now to appear on our behalf in the presence of God. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the most high place every year with blood that's not his own otherwise christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself maybe meditate on that verse for yourself that ties together all these kind of old testament pictures of Jesus as the high priest and also the other verses we've talked today about him as king and suffering servant. We've covered so much in these podcasts but nowhere near the fullness of what you can find in the Old Testament about Jesus. I hope we've been able to open the scriptures to you in this series and I want to leave you with this hope that maybe you've been listening to this and you're still not entirely clear but Jesus said this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I pray that over this season you can meet with Jesus and have him open your mind to understand the scriptures. Amen. Thank you for listening to Amblecote Christian Centre's podcast. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecotechristiancentre.org.uk.